0: Hey y'all, welcome back to the Birth Launch Podcast. This is actually a tag-long episode from last week. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode with my friend Julia Carroll, who is a solo parent, you you should. You should actually go back. We're talking about all the decisions. We get really deep. I cry a little bit. Julia's sharing and all the decisions that kind of come along with how she got there, but also what you need to consider as your action steps if you're exploring this option for yourself or once you have decided, hey, this is this is what I'm choosing. This episode, though, this week, we're actually going to be diving into Julia's birth story because, of course, I think everyone is very curious, how does this happen when you're a solo parent? But also, I just love birth stories, so I'm totally down to hear it. So, Julia, I'm just going to hand the ball to you. Take it away. Yeah. I, first of all, I'm thrilled to share my birth
1: story in general. I just really like talking about it, but also I think it's, I didn't hear any solo parent birth stories before I had my kid. And this is going to sound so crazy, but you know, when there's something you're a little anxious about in life and you just latch on to some teeny tiny portion and you can't let it go. Has that ever happened to you? Totally. So well before getting pregnant, well before even committing fully to being a solo parent, I was like, I can't be a solo parent because who's going to drive me to the hospital? Right. Like in my head, you have that, you know, those movie scenes where the woman's standing in like a department store and her water breaks and her loving partner comes and like rushes her to the hospital. And then there's this like, will they or won't they make it moment? And it's all so beautiful. And then you see like the twinkle lights and they're holding their baby together and it's just amazing. I sort of felt like, Obviously the logic is silly. I can't have a baby because there's nobody to drive me to the hospital. But I was so obsessed with that concept that every time I told myself I wasn't maybe going to go down this path, that was one of the images that was holding me back from something I wanted was this like deep fear, how am I going to get to the hospital? As it turns out my parents drove me, but I was obsessing over this preconception during my fertility journey, during 9 months of pregnancy I was like just compulsively up at night, terrified I wasn't going to get to the hospital. (laughs) So one of the things I did to mitigate that fear is I asked my mom to be in the hospital room with me and I thought she was not really going to like that. And it turns out she like cried when I asked her and then she told all of her friends that she was going to be in the hospital room with her and one person she told was like, oh my God, my mom was in the hospital with, room with me. This woman was married, but her mom came into the hospital. She goes, and then my mom fainted. and So it was actually a disaster. And as it turns out, I think it's very hard for moms to watch birth because they're it's their baby having a baby and their mm-hmm. baby is in pain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? I don't know. Did, have you had any moms in the delivery room with you?
0: Yeah, we have. So we've had a handful of solo parents who have had either their mom or their sister be present with them. And you guys, when you're thinking about that, know that doulas do support, you know, solo parent births for sure. Again, marketing fails us where we are typically thinking about a husband and a wife and a doula. Your family can look like literally anything, as can your birth. But yeah, Julia, I think that there is a piece for everyone in the room. To be able to hold space for this person who is having some really intense sensations and pressures, but those attendants of the labor have the potential and can possess the skills to reframe that. And I think some. Birth attendants can really tap into that energy, and then some people just really can't. And I think your relationship to that birthing person matters a lot, right? And so you nailed it on the head with holding like calm energy in the birth room, which is typically required for kind of a grounded experience. Yeah. And I was, so then
1: I had this like secondary anxiety on top of it. I was sort of like, Nervous for myself and then nervous for my mom. Mm-hmm. So I did hire a doula. And when I was interviewing doulas, I asked the, I like very specifically, was like, what's your experience supporting solo moms? And then my question was, what's your experience supporting like grandmothers who are in the room? Because my mom, you know, becoming a grandmother- because I was just, I just had this fear that if she got too anxious, then I as the birthing person would be managing her anxiety and not my own. And so the doula's role was to do both of those things. In the end, she was amazing, but I just had this fear of like, oh my God, what if I'm trying to support my mom? (laughs) So yeah, I found a doula. I also convinced that doula to drive me to the hospital. If there was an emergency, she didn't need to, but she was like, it's not legal, but I guess I could do it. If you really need me to, you know, good Samaritan laws,
0: I think for that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then the next thing I was sort of upset about was there was going to be no partner for me in the Lamaze or birthing classes. And then I got lucky. I mean, the pandemic didn't, there were no birthing classes. Mm. So on one hand I had no information. And on the other hand, I had no information. It's kind of great. Instead my doula walked me through a lot of the things I needed to know and together she presented me with the decisions I would have to make and we sort of thought through those in advance. And then I have this friend who's an OBGYN. And this friend I have to give her a shout out. She is like the most incredible human. When I went through my fertility stuff, it was during the heart of the pandemic and the infertility clinics were closed. So I actually had sperm shipped to my house. And we like warmed it up in our hands. It came in this like big cryo tank and we warmed it up in our hands. And she, the first time inseminated me on my couch, didn't work, but I was like, this is a good friend to have. Who's willing to come to your house and help you try to get pregnant. Yeah. So she happened to be a doctor at the same hospital that I was delivering. So like three nights before I went into labor, we sat on her front stoops and she walked me through everything. Like you're going to go to the hospital. Here's where you park, walk through door, take a left. This is where, like, this is where you check in, like all of that stuff, but also things like don't come too early because then you're going to be more likely to have Pitocin or something like that. You're more likely to, right, exactly. Hold off as long as possible. You know, she gave me all these like insider scoop and that was, really helpful to just have the visual learning because I didn't get that from the hospital. And thank God I didn't get that because I didn't really want to sit through all those happy couples breathing together on my own. That didn't sound pleasant. So how did that play out in my actual labor and delivery? The first thing is I was really confused about, you're going to remind me, what's the breathing?
0: For breathing in and out, it's usually like four to six in and then eight counts out. But what
1: about the distance between the contractions?
0: Oh, yeah, 511, or some people use 411. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I got obsessed with that number, and my contractions didn't look like that. But I was like, I can't go to the hospital until they look this way. (laughs) <laughs> which was silly, but the morning I delivered, I went to my friend's house and she checked my cervix for me. And again, in her living room with gloves. Nice. <laughs> and she was like, you've got a long time to go. And she gave me breakfast. I like hung out with her kids and I promptly left her house and threw up all over the sidewalk. So annoying, which was to say that I was in labor, but I didn't acknowledge that I was in labor. My parents came over. I was sort of hanging out in the bathtub for a while and it got to the point where my dad, who was in the other room, like not near his naked pregnant daughter, it's like, get your ass out of that tub. You like, got to go. go. And I'm like, no, 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 it, it's I haven't hit the five one one. And it was something like three, two, two or something like that. It just like the numbers were just off. And I, was like, I need to do, <laughs> but here's where it becomes relevant. There are two things that I think happened that I learned a lot from in my birth. The first is I delivered early August, which is when in Massachusetts, at least a lot of the residents switch. So my, I did choose to get an epidural. The anesthesiologist who came in waddled in very heavily pregnant. It turns out she was delivering that night through C-section. So she and I were like watering the floors together, waving at one another. It was awesome. But she waddled in, she instructed her residents to give me the line. And I didn't fully understand that an epidural was supposed to like relieve all of your pain. I thought it was like taking an Advil where it makes things incrementally better. So I was in extreme pain, but I was like, I think it's marginally less the pain I was feeling before. And so a nurse was watching me labor in pain, having theoretically had an epidural. And I was just like, like couldn't function. I couldn't labor. I couldn't push. I couldn't do any of the things. And she kept saying, this is not right. This is not what it should look like. You need to ask for an epidural again. And the residents would come in and check on me. and would be like, it hurts, but I like, it hurts a little bit better. It's not as bad. And they'd be like, see, it's working. And like, go out. As it turns out, I needed to advocate for myself and say, this isn't right. I'm not okay. Fix it. And when I was finally encouraged to do that, because a nurse can't do that for you. They can't tell a doctor to do something. They can just tell you, I'm seeing you, you are not okay, Mm -hmm. right? And you need to advocate for yourself. So I hold that message and I share that message because I just, I was trying to be tough. I was trying to like work through it. I was, you know, it's fine, I can do this. And the second I said, I'm not okay, get the doctor in here, fix it. And she came in and fixed it. Everything got, it was like, that moment in wizard of Oz, where you go from black and white to color, like, Oh, this is much better. I can handle this. And I know not everyone wants an epidural or needs an epidural, but it was given that it was a choice I had made. It was a choice. I wanted to be executed properly. So that was the first thing. Then the second thing is my friend who is the doctor came in at one point, cause she had finished her rounds and so at one point we look around, we have my mom and my doula and my ob and my friend who's an ob and two female nurses and the epidurals kicked in and we got the music going and we've got like everyone's chit-chatting and it was like a party. Yeah. People would come into the room and be like, whoa, the estrogen in here is off the charts. We had so much fun. Once the epidural kicked in, I had like this big raging birth party. And it felt good to be surrounded by a community of women. And it felt good to just like, I think about those communities where people birth together and everyone shows up and supports you. And I had that, and I don't think many people do. So in hindsight, the who's going to drive me to the hospital, who's going to be in the room with me, it ended up being so much better than if I had a male partner because I had all these, I was surrounded by women who were just We just had a blast, Mm -hmm. you know, we had so much fun. And I know that's weird to say for a birth story, but it was just like, I have the best memories from doing this incredible thing with wonderful people and great music and lots of like laughter. So,
0: okay. That lights my soul on fire, but you know what it also brings up for me is Mm -hmm. birth is supposed to be like that, that sacred space where. Not everybody is invited to this party. And sometimes you can very clearly see that people's partners, particularly male partners, haven't done the work required to be in the birth space and therefore they disrupt the space. Yeah. And you didn't even have the opportunity for that to be a choice because you got to handpick your community that got to be at your labor. And that is how birth is supposed to be. The network that you had, having your OBGYN friend right down the street who is coming to give you care, but also you were being able to go to her and having your doula and having your parents there, how special it was. It's just nice to see that. You got to send out the invites to your private party, Mm -hmm. to the people that you wanted. And there was nobody that got an obligatory invite that was disrupting the energy.
1: No, I mean, even the nurses were so much fun. They got really into it. And they were like, one of them had to switch shifts. And she's like, I don't want to leave this. We're (laughs) having so much fun, you know, and, and it's true. I think I like that having the invites to your party my dad was not invited. He drove and that was it. That was the end of his role. And I really did not want him there. And I had an opportunity to have uh, some other people in my life that I love and care about deeply in the room that would have brought different energy. And I chose not to, it was perfect. It was six women who were just like, this is awesome. Let's rock it. And then my mom cut the cord, cut the umbilical cord, and that, and we did like the, he was on my chest. And look, I also acknowledge there's a significant amount of privilege in my birth story. There is the ability to hire a doula. There is a mom who is alive and healthy and well enough to participate. There mm-hmm. is a friend who lived down the street and who could give me insider information into how the hospital worked. And an OBGYN who wasn't territorial and said, yes. Yeah, uh, another doctor who does what I do. She can come in, you know, and they were sharing tips and tricks like, Oh, you do it this way. I'll do it this way. Like, and they were learning from each other. So there's a lot of privilege in my story, but it was a lot of fun. And I highly recommend choosing your community if you can.
0: Yeah. That lights my soul on fire. Also, I just want to touch energetically on your mom, being able to cut the cord of your baby. that. How did you guys come to that decision? Oh, it was just
1: so obvious. It was just like, if she's going to be in the room anyway, I want her, really want her to be like fully participatory. And she was really nervous to do it, but I think it was one of those defining moments for her. She goes around now a year and a half later, she, or 14 months later, she tells all of her friends, it's my baby. It's my baby. She calls him my baby. (laughs) I'm like, you're the grandma. But if she was there, I wanted her to be fully there. She was also responsible for snacks. I didn't need any snacks, but I made her responsible for snacks. And I think sometimes when you're nervous to support a loved one, having something that you can own is good.
0: Yeah. Having jobs, I always say, give Mm -hmm. them tasks to do. And this goes for anyone who is supporting you in birth. If you have a partner, who's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Come up with the top five to seven things that they can remember. If I... looking like I'm in a lot of pain and nothing is working, encourage me to get in the shower, number one. Make sure I'm taking sips of water every couple contractions, number two. Don't forget that I should be being offered food every two hours or so, number three. Make sure I'm peeing every two hours or so, number four, right? You've got these things that you can give them that they can memorize. What else should people know about maybe planning for the birth process. If that is different, you spoke about one, I think big one that comes to a lot of people's mind is how will I get there? So what other things were maybe different since you were having your parents support you and a doula? Well, one of the things I'll
1: share, and this isn't specifically related to the birth story, but in the fertility process itself, The medical community is a little bit mixed on how to handle families that are non-traditional. And what I mean by that is there are some providers who are so deeply sensitive in the use of their language and their behavior. And there are some people who are so rude and obnoxious. I went for an ultrasound once and the tech, I was like, I'm going through fertility journey and I'm using a sperm donor. And she looked at me and she said, is there something wrong with your husband? Just think about that for a second. First of all, it, Negated the solo parent journey that I was on. It also, if I were a gay or lesbian woman, that would have negated the significant relationship that I had with my partner. Mm -hmm. But if I were married and there was something that wasn't, maybe my husband had gone through cancer or chemotherapy or was currently in treatment for something, how triggering would that have been that this person's like, oh, something must be wrong with your husband? And that's one egregious example, but there were countless examples of providers that said very obnoxious things. So in preparation, finding a provider, if you can, if you live in a community where you get to select, you know, you have enough options to select from that understands that you're solo, you know, and that is willing to be extra supportive of you is really important. You can't help the person with the wand who you're going to see once who says something stupid, but if you're going to see somebody more than once and they're going to be in the delivery room with you, my doula also knew a lot about my solo parenting journey. And so she was instructed to be an advocate if anyone says anything stupid she was going to step in in mm-hmm. fact my doula decided to become a solo mom herself and she oh. got inseminated the day before I delivered oh, is- and that resulted in a baby and so I always think that like that birth was so magical it like ensured that her stuck yeah. because we were all in it together you know
0: That's awesome. Energetically, I'm all about the energy of like the torch and just like energy that influences one another. And that is such a bold example of that. I love it.
1: Yeah. Now, look, I mean, she probably she was going to go down this path no matter what, and she probably would have had success no matter what. But I think it did. There was some like juicy stuff around this positive experience that she was participating. And I think that had how could it not have at least started something that was already going to happen energetically? You know, the universe that's already provided for it could at least started it off in the nice foot. So yeah, think about your providers. Don't be ashamed to communicate. This is what path I'm on and this is how I want to be treated. And I think it's natural to have, there's just certain things that we're never going to let go. I'm never going to let go of the image of sitting in a birthing class with a ball, you know, breathing with my exercises is like this gorgeous man standing behind me and supporting and loving me through that. I don't get to have that picture, but I also could have, I opted out of any birth classes. I chose to get a private education by asking my doula all the questions. So I think the journey, the birth journey can be who you make it in part by who you select. You mentioned that. And in part by advocating for yourself, which I learned from the epidural crisis or asking people to advocate for you. You know, if I'm in crisis and somebody says something stupid, step in and, and get them out of
0: the room. So. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. I really do think that your birth is an invite only event. And yeah. I really do mean that if if someone is not deserving of their invitation, they've got to go. It can't be you. You're not the star of the show and also the security guard. Somebody else has got to be there to escort these people yeah. out and to let them know like, Hey, I'm so sorry, but we are actually requesting a new nurse. We're requesting a new doctor. We need just the room cleared for 20 minutes just to like get things reset. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Julia, can you give us some of the most useful, helpful, most frequented resources that you have, or maybe had in the beginning of this journey, that if someone were in the beginning stages of this process, what, what resources should they absolutely hundred percent be aware of? If you're going through a solo parenting journey,
1: I definitely think joining the Facebook group solo mom by choice is key. I just think it's really important because you can ask or witness any number of questions and it'll all come up. I think making sure you're talking to your providers. This choice I made is important to me. And I, you know, it's important that you respect it is key. As far as birth itself, independent of being a solo parent, there was an online tool and I can't remember the name of it, which basically laid out all of the like major decision points you would have epidural no epidural whether you do cord blood banking or you have the cord blood extend the amount of time before you cut the cord whether they get the goop in their eyes you know all these things just listed all of the decisions you'd make and gave the the evidence-based research behind doing one or the other and reading all that and being able to make my choices in advance. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a birth plan necessarily, because I understand that birth plans are really just suggestions. But it was, if I'm faced with this decision, what do I want? If I'm faced with this decision, what do I want? So it was really important to me that the cord get cut is like that he have his cord as long as possible. He get as much of that beautiful blood flowing until like the last minute. So that was, you know, those, those kinds of things, which you can get through a doula or through your own online research, I think is really key. Yeah. Yeah. That
0: just that empowerment to take control of your situation. You don't have to sit by and be idle hands for nine or 10 months while you wait for your baby to get here, go ahead and start planning now. Right. I always, always say the longer your runway, the smoother the landing. So start planning now. And you nailed it. It's not a plan as much as it is a list of your preferences and the people around you in labor, just check in with you and say, Julia, I know that it was really important for you to do delayed cord clamping and you wanted him to have, you know, his cord turn white. Is that something you're still interested in? And you're like, yes, absolutely. And I say, okay, great. You know, your baby's been born for about a minute. So your doctor might ask you if they can cut it soon. So just be prepared for that. Now, you know, the question is coming, right? Hopefully you've talked to your provider about your preferences and they know this, but what happens if it's a provider that you've not ever talked to, or what if it is the on-call doctor and they're not your provider who you have had this conversation with? So different things pop up, but yeah, absolutely. There's one other thing I'll say, which is if you do choose to become a solo mom
1: or solo parent, you've made a big major choice. You've taken control over your destiny and you are really shaping your own life. And so that should extend to your birth, right? For me, the decision to make, to become a solo mom was almost like this. It opened all these gates to say, wait a minute, I'm in control over so much more than I thought. I made this big decision. I made this hard choice. So yeah, I am going to insist on the cord blood bank and not the, the delayed cord clamping because that's important to me. Whereas I think prior to making the big major life choice, I might have let some of the smaller life choices slide. In this case, it was like, no, I may, I'm, I'm fully committed to this path and I've made all the hard choices. So for sure, you're going to listen to me on this little one.
0: I think there's just an overarching theme of when you're ready to reach out and grab your control, it is there for you to take.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is I would want everyone to walk away and say that a solo parent's birth journey can be beautiful. It can be wonderful. You're not missing something. There's no lack or loss by not having your partner in your life, it's not a sad event. It can be. I mean, if you've lost your partner or have walked away from a relationship just before having a baby, which I know many people have, that can be sad. But if you're choosing this, it's joyful. It's your Mm -hmm. choice. And the birth should reflect the joy that you put into the decision to become a solo parent.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is beautiful. Okay, Julia, I want to wrap up with how people can get in touch with you. So you're a podcast, Storked, and that's S-T-O-R-K apostrophe D. But where else can people find you and connect with you and learn more about your story? Yeah. Thank you so much
1: for asking. So first off, Storked is on any channel that you normally get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, you name it. Secondly, we have this incredible newsletter where we talk about a lot of these topics in addition to the podcast. So definitely sign up for that. You can do that on the website, which is storkedpodcast.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I respond on Instagram. So if you want to DM me, do it there. Or you can email me using the email address that's on the website.
0: Cool. Oh, my gosh. You are... A a beam of light and B such a great and incredible resource for people who are choosing a non-traditional way to build their family. And you know, I love challenging the norm. And so I think that I'm so drawn to you and the conversations that you facilitate because you do exactly that. You challenge us to rethink: well, what does family mean? And and how do families become a family? And What does it mean if your life doesn't take those traditional roots? What does that say about you? And I think that a lot of humans could really benefit from thinking deeper about themselves and their self-worth and their meaning of being on earth in conjunction with these things, but also separately from these ideations of you have to do things this way. You have to grow up and get married, and you have to. I mean, we're seeing it now with college. You have to go to college. You have to have children, and what does it say about you if you just have one child? Yeah, you know all of the things. Oh my gosh, we could talk for hours. I all could. right, thanks so so much for joining us, Julia. This has been fantastic, listeners please reach out to her. She is such a wealth of knowledge and just such a kind spirit. You're going to feel so much lighter after talking to Julia, or I always do. All right, you guys, thanks for tuning in this week. I will see you next week. If you're listening on the podcast, tune into YouTube. And if you are listening on YouTube, check us out on the podcast for for some more really rad guests. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Hey there, just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your health care provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hee Hee and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.